In the first century when Jesus arrived on the scene, although Rome was very much in power over this region of the world, at the same time, Jewish culture was still alive and thriving during this time. And as a part of Jewish culture, there was a real significant prominent figure within the culture known as a rabbi. And Jesus will take the position of a rabbi. And, and a rabbi's job, their responsibility was to teach and to train people in what the scriptures taught us about God and even what God expected from us. And for a rabbi, they start at the young age of 30. Their, their first order of business, once publicly recognized as such as a rabbi, was to go out and secure for themselves a group of disciples. And it's exactly what we find Jesus doing early in the Gospels. Remember, at the age of 30, Jesus will start his public ministry, and it'll only last three years. But in that three years, he'll have a group of 12 who will follow him, designated as his disciples. So that's the rabbi, the prominent figure. But what about these characters, these disciples? Now, if you were alive in the first century in, in the nation of Israel, then you as a young person, you would be taken through schooling, but not just schooling on math or Israel's history, but really schooling on the scriptures was a huge, prominent part of your education system. Because to be a Jew, by very definition, to be a part of the nation of Israel, was by very definition to be uniquely connected with God. Remember, Israel, it means to contend or to wrestle with God. These are the people that God had said, this is who I will be for you. I'll be the one that, that you'll be engaged with, that I'll even be patient enough to wrestle with you through this process of being connected to you. You are my special people. And so you as a young person, you go to a first phase of schooling called Bet Sefer. Uh, Bet Sefer, Bet means in or to study in something, but it's uh, Bet Sefer was to study in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And your expectation by the age of 12 uh, was that if you were going to continue your schooling, you would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. Like significant portions or maybe the, the whole thing that you could recite it from memory. That, that was a part of the expectation if you were to graduate then to Bet Talmud, which meant uh, to, to study in uh, the doctrines. If you were going to move on from just the, the basics of the scripture and then studying a new phase of learning for the next two years, you would then have expectation that you would have a firm grasp on the remainder of the Old Testament prophets and of the Psalms, that, that you'd know them so well that if, if someone were to start a passage that you could finish it from memory. Now, most people, most of us at some point in time, probably at that first cutoff, uh, we wouldn't have been invited back to a second phase of schooling. We instead would have gone to learn the family business. At some point, you'd be turned away, and rather than looking at you and, and saying, yes, you have, a, you have a future in these studies, most of us would have heard, you know, it's time for you to go get a job working as a carpenter with dad or, or a fisherman on his boat. You see, the schooling wasn't just about training a future generation. The schooling was also a form, a way of weeding out and setting aside the best and the brightest in society to get them to hang on to the traditions of the people and to hang on to the teaching of the scripture for them to become disciples and future rabbis even. From Bet Sefer to Bet Talmud and then Bet Midras. That, that you would start this third phase of schooling if you've made the cut in that third phase of schooling was you starting a process, almost like today when you're applying to a prestigious university, of you pulling your credentials together, of you pulling together your opinions of what you've learned and now your new outlook on life, and you taking that kind of information and what you'd prepare, you'd take it to a rabbi in order to beg and plead that you could become one of his disciples. 
And so you would be questioned and grilled because what you were longing to hear was an invitation from a rabbi to follow me. That statement was a huge statement because with it came the invitation to be one of his unique disciples. And if you were selected, it would be like someone in maybe Poway who maybe, let's say, next year, they represent our country in the Olympics. And so as you drive into Poway, as the, you'd see the Welcome to Poway, the city and the country sign with the slogan. You'd also see uh, someone would put a sign there and the hometown of so-and-so, our own hometown boy or hometown girl and Olympian. It'd be something that your whole community would rally around. Oh, our son, he's a disciple of Rabbi Hallel. It, it would be such a big deal in a community. This was such a, a huge cultural piece for someone to be invited to follow someone as a disciple. For us, the word disciple uh, doesn't mean very much. Uh, it's not something that's typically thrown around. It, it's, it's the idea of an apprentice, though. If you went to a master craftsman or a woodworker and said, I, I want to be your apprentice, it's more than just learning what he knows or knowing what he knows. It's really learning to do what he does is what you're after. You want to become like him. And if he has his trademark signature thing that he, he uniquely can do or does so well, it's you learning that art form and mastering it yourself. That was the goal. You see, you don't follow a rabbi like you follow someone on a social media platform where you can just click a button and all of a sudden you're, you're done. You've done all of the work and now you're just waiting to see if they say something inspiring. And, and if they do, then maybe you give them a like or the coveted retweet if it really inspires you. No, following someone on Twitter looks very, very different than the choice to follow a rabbi because to follow someone in our culture on a social media platform, it requires nothing from you. It doesn't cost you anything. And even if you never read their posts again or muted their account completely, you'd still be considered their follower. And track with me, some people, I think that this is their experience of Christianity. Where they clicked the button, they said a prayer, and for them, they're like, I'm just kind of waiting around now to see if someone will say something that inspires me and that's worth me responding to, that's worth an action coming in response to it, that's worth maybe even me repeating it. But that's all that they've relegated their Christian experience to. They've given themselves the title of Christian. Now, if you hit rewind back to the first century, the earliest followers of Jesus, they didn't give themselves that title. They referred to themselves as the people of the way. You'll find it in the book of Acts. They called themselves the people of the way because remember Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. They were saying that they were actively following the way that Jesus had laid before them. It was an active choice. That's what following Jesus looked like. Christian was a title that people outside of the movement of those who followed Jesus, that they gave those who followed Jesus because they looked at them and said, you look and, and act so much like Jesus that we'll call you a little Christ, a Christian. For us in our American culture, many take on the title of Christian, and I would argue maybe we shouldn't take on the title of Christian. Maybe we should instead be the people of the way because it describes an active motion, an active faith, an active determination to be like Jesus. If you've been around the church, you know that I typically will refer to myself as a follower of Jesus or refer to you as if you're a follower of Jesus, because it's not just the title of Christian. Let's let someone else call us that and say, oh, you look like Christ. But let's have us be known and, and make ourselves known as people who choose to follow Jesus. Because following Jesus is a lot bigger than just clicking some button or saying some prayer. Being a disciple is, is not just about hearing what your rabbi says or knowing what he knows. It's about being like your rabbi. 
It's choosing to adopt and adapt to the teachings and lifestyle of another. That's what a disciple is. It's someone who chooses daily to adopt and adapt to the teaching and philosophy, the lifestyle of another. Uh, a rabbi's teachings were typically referred to as his yoke. You, you picture a yoke going over two animals, two beasts of burden, two oxen that would pull a wagon or pull a plow behind them. Jesus would, would use that imagery and, and do what other people uh, would do in the first century as rabbis, and he would explain what his yoke is. Remember what he said. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my whole new paradigm, my whole new worldview. Take that upon you. Think like me. Be my follower. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, if you choose to follow me as your rabbi, this will not be some unbearable burden. And it's true, isn't it? It's true for those of us who have made that choice. It's not some unbearable burden. Amen. Did you know that just five times in the New Testament, Jesus will say, believe in me. But did you know that 20 times, four times as many, he'll look at people and say, follow me. Follow me. And there's a difference. You know, it wasn't that long ago that Time Magazine ran a cover story about the most admired people in human history. And making that list were people like Shakespeare and Napoleon. Even Lincoln made the list. But topping the list was Jesus. I'm sure for Jesus, he was very flattered to top the list. Uh, but think about it. Jesus never told anyone, admire me. He never asked anyone, respect me. He didn't even come and say, would you like me? Jesus instead invited people to follow him. And I think that's different. He's not just looking for a fan or for an admirer. What he's looking for is a follower. An admirer is someone maybe who's impressed, but a follower is someone who's devoted. An admirer is someone who observes, but, but a follower is someone who's engaged. An admirer might stand and applaud at some point in time, but a follower is willing to surrender. And remember, Jesus talked openly about how you and I, we have to count the cost if we're going to choose to follow him. And counting the cost was not just a metaphor. Counting the, the cost of discipleship means that you've realized that choosing to be one of Jesus' followers may cost you, Jesus said, the highest price relationally or maybe even the highest price physically. I mean, make no mistake about it. Salvation is a gift. It's free to us. We don't have to earn it. For by grace you've been saved, Scripture says, that not of yourself. It's the free gift of God. And although free to you, it cost Jesus everything, his very life. Please hear me, though. Although, although you don't have to earn it, Jesus doesn't hide the fact that it may cost you if you choose to embrace it. In Luke 14, he said, So likewise, whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Will it cost you everything to follow Jesus? Well, maybe not. It will require that you're willing to have a loose hold on everything, that you'd be willing to lose everything though if you're going to choose to follow him to follow jesus if in the first century in jesus day if you if you went to a rabbi to apply to be one of his disciples he'd grill you with questions and and quotations of scripture and and and, and expect you to be able to recite the remainder of the passage and, and for most in that process they'd be turned down and and pushed aside they'd be sent home to learn the family trade but for the select few for the prestigious, they'd hear the words they'd long to hear, follow me. But in the Gospels, Jesus does something that you may have noticed before if you're familiar with the story of the Gospels. 
And that's that Jesus will flip the script, breaking the social norm at least in two different ways. The how and the who that he will select disciples. First, consider the how. Jesus, when you think of the, the how he invites people to follow him, is that Jesus doesn't wait for individuals to come to him and beg and plead, saying, Jesus, please allow me the great privilege of being one of your disciples. Jesus instead will make himself vulnerable and go to individuals publicly even and invite them, risking rejection. In an honor and shame culture, this is a huge deal. For him to put himself out there like this is him to place himself under the individual that he's making a request from. And he will go to them and say, would you follow me in invitation? It was unheard of. This was very odd what Jesus will do. It's not just the how he will invite them, but it's the who also. Because if you know the story of the gospel, it's that Jesus invites fishermen and, and even prostitutes and sinners and social outcasts, even some that we would classify as religious folks who were John's disciples, to come and to follow him as his own disciples. He's what we call an equal opportunity employer. He seemed like he wouldn't turn anyone away. In the words of author Paul Tripp, he said it this way. He says, what qualifies you is not worthiness, it's your willingness. Now, quite possibly the most shocking invitation that Jesus gives is recorded here in Mark chapter 2. And that's where we begin. Well, we've already begun. That was my lengthy introduction. But Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Don't judge me. It wasn't that long. 13 minutes. Verse 13, then Jesus went out again by the sea and all the multitude came to him and he taught them. Okay, so picture this. He's back in Capernaum, a familiar place on the, the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is what's known as a peripatetic teacher that he would walk and talk, that he'd walk and teach. It wasn't just always sitting down in a stationary place where he would sit and everyone else would stand and listen. But Jesus is, it seems to be on the move through the city as you pick up the story from three of the four different gospel accounts, tell us this story. As he's moving, people are moving quickly to keep up, but quietly to hang on to his every word. It tells you there's a multitude that's gathered to hear him. It's a big group of people that are moving with him. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office in Capernaum. It's a major trade route. It's also a port city and a border city between uh, Herod the Great, he had divided his territory between his four sons, Antipas and Philip. They, they oversaw these two regions, and, and this was a great place to set up a tax office because if you cruised into Capernaum from one of the surrounding villages, you're undoubtedly crossing one of those border lines, and you could be taxed as you're bringing fish out of the Sea of Galilee. You could be taxed. He's sitting there in this elevated booth, and I assume that people are not looking his direction fondly, but Jesus will turn his attention there. Because he sees this man sitting at the tax office and he says to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners, it's the designation that was used in the first century for those who had given up on their attempt to reach and to please God. They were the social outcasts because they no longer were a part of the Jewish religious system. He sat with these tax collectors and sinners who also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with these tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
You know, for us, as we read the story, it can almost seem crazy or even incomprehensible that someone would just drop everything in response to Jesus' simple invitation of follow me. But as we just discussed, it, it was a big deal. To be invited to do this, to follow a rabbi, was a huge deal in this culture. That explains part of it. The other thing that can explain it for us is, is the timeline of events that lead up to this. Uh, Mark is unique in the way that it was written because this is really not Mark's firsthand eyewitness account. This is Peter's, church history tells us, remember, that Peter tells Mark as they travel together. He tells them the stories of what Jesus did, and then Mark will piece them together. It's unique not only in that way, but it's also unique in that this is not necessarily um, a chronological order that Mark uses in retelling the story of Jesus like the other Gospels may uh, give more clarity to. And, and in those other Gospels, like Luke and like Matthew, they give you a clearer timeline of events that are leading up to this that help it to make a bit more sense, where Jesus is publicly baptized, remember, by John the Baptist, goes into the wilderness for temptation, and then Jesus will start a rhythm of going back and forth between the Galilee and Jerusalem, where he will go there for the feast throughout the year, but the majority of his time will be spent in Galilee. The majority of his ministry hub will be set up in this little village called Capernaum. It's the hometown of four familiar fishermen, of, of Peter and Andrew, his brother, of James and John, his brother. And in Capernaum, Jesus will then begin calling his disciples. He's going to be seen teaching in the other Gospels in chronological order. He's seen teaching and healing in Capernaum, even Peter's mother-in-law. And then he uses the boat of those familiar fishermen as a pulpit as he teaches a message. And at the end of it, he will tell them to cast their nets into the water. And they're like, hey, we haven't really caught anything. Peter specifically will patiently argue, but willingly goes out. And when he does, throws the net on the other side, has a huge catch, responds to Jesus and says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And then Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. Jesus then will stay in Capernaum where he's going to heal a leper and heal a paralyzed guy. And then he calls this other individual, Levi, to follow him. Listen, all that to say, Jesus is a familiar face. This, this healer, this young rabbi was well known in this area. By the time he extends this invitation to Levi, an invitation that Luke's gospel tells you that, that when Levi responded to it, he left everything in that moment and followed Jesus. Okay, now here, three, three simple things that we'll, we'll talk about together. Three very simple things from the story that I want to point out to you about being a disciple, about a choice to follow Jesus. The first is that if you respond to Jesus' invitation to follow him, that following Jesus is always an invitation for transformation. Jesus' invitation is an invitation for transformation. It's interesting that rather than Jesus going to the rabbinic schools of the day to look for qualified candidates... Jesus will take his disciples from the workforce, which means that these are guys that in the culture and in that day had already been passed over. And at some point in time, had already been told, you don't make the cut, that, that, that you're not good enough, that you ought to just go and learn the family trade instead. But Jesus pursued those kinds of people. He wanted them even if others didn't view them as good enough. He wanted them even if they didn't view themselves as good enough which is huge and encouraging. I don't know for you if it is. It sure is for me. I know that I didn't. I wouldn't. I don't make the cut if there's a cut. And I can try so hard to, to be and to feel good enough. But that kind of a mentality is meant to be removed from my relationship with Jesus because he has not asked me to be and to try to be good enough. 
The law, remember, the purpose of the law was to expose my own need for a savior. It was to expose my inability to be my own savior. Jesus will purposefully pursue other people that others had already passed over and said, you'll never make the cut. There's no test to take. There's no standard to meet. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, for me, I grew up in the home, as many of you know, of a, of a pastor and church planner. And, and our home was kind of an intense place at times. My dad was an intense and stressed out guy. And, and, and I think I have young kids now. I, I recognize that, that sometimes a shortcut to compliance is fear and shame. And I think in our home, that was, it almost became a default mode in a season because there was so much going on in my family during that time. And so fear and shame to raise your voice was a shortcut to compliance, to shame us or to get in our face and, and, and push our mistakes on us would get us to comply. But fear and shame, though powerful motivators, are crazy toxic motivators. I think some of us have that in our life experience, but unfortunately, I think many of us, that's what we view heaven itself as, as fear and shame are the powerful motivators that, that, that we assume God is trying to use in our lives to motivate us to comply and to do things he desires us to do. But it wasn't until I began reading the Gospels myself as a high school student and seeing that Jesus was so different. And, and if Jesus is God in the flesh, then it's not just that Jesus is God, it's that God is Jesus. I'm learning about God by reading about Jesus. And what I saw in Jesus was so different than what I expected of heaven. That what I expected of heaven's demands or heaven's motivation or the pressure it would place on me because the motivation for the follower of Jesus is not fear or shame, it's love. It's that we're loved. It's that we're loved without measure or merit. It's that we're loved without hesitation. It's that we're invited to follow Jesus even though we don't meet the expectation or standard. It's that Jesus goes into the workforce to the people who've been already passed over and says, you're the one that I want. It was then that my experience of, of experiencing that kind of love that so dramatically reshaped my heart, transformed my own life, that that it shifted my heart from one that was full of bitterness and resentment towards my own home and my own parents, or my dad specifically, and all of a sudden shifted it to, to love and grace. The kind of love and grace that I have received from Jesus was the love and grace I had in my heart towards my own home. He didn't just reshape and transform that aspect of my life, but he then reshaped and, and transformed even the desires I had and the, the way that I dreamed about my future, where the very last thing I ever assumed that I'd do was be a pastor, and yet here we are because... To follow Jesus is an invitation for transformation because he'll, he'll, he'll definitely transform your life. And it's what he does with this guy. In fact, think about this guy. This guy, Levi, he's a tax man. And even in our modern world, it's kind of frowned upon. In fact, it, at Petco Park on a Sunday, it's, it's Military Appreciation Day. It's not IRS Appreciation Day. And there's a reason for that because few would show up to that party. But back in his day, in Levi's day, there was even more animosity towards the tax man. Because the Roman government were the ones who were ruling in this region of the world. And, and what they would do is they'd come to a new region and they would assess a fixed tax figure. And then they would sell the right to an individual, a local in the community. They'd sell the right for him to be the one to extract that tax figure from his local community. But they would not tell the community what that fixed number was. They would only tell it to the person that purchased that right. And then he could take, okay, Rome says I need to get this much. He could then mark that up as much as he wanted and keep all that was on the top. It was a lucrative role for sure. And, and it opened the door for extortion and for a lot of messiness. 
And the taxman, he'd be set up in a booth at, at major intersections or at the edge of a harbor like Capernaum has. In an elevated booth, he'd be yelling down about what people owed the Romans, and he'd have soldiers nearby who were his enforcers to shake you down. And by law, historians tell us that he could tax just about everything, anyone that crossed along the road, that major trade route. He, he could tax anyone who docked a boat in the harbor, which tells me that Peter and Andrew, that James and John knew this guy and probably didn't care very much for him. And yet Jesus is about to pull them together on the same team. Think about this. One of his other disciples will be an insurrectionist. The last guy he would care to sit next to is the guy who worked as a defector working for the Romans. Those two guys were people who didn't want to meet in a back alley somewhere because someone would come out probably with a knife wound. And yet Jesus is like, I'm going to pull you together. You're going to be on my team together, which tells me I probably need to care a lot less about who I don't like or what I don't like or let that drive me away from anyone or anything because Jesus just pulled these unlikely characters together. You could tax anyone carrying a bag. You could make them empty it and pay a fee based on the weight. You could tax anybody pushing a cart, even down to the number of wheels that were on the cart, taxing each wheel. And, and he could set that amount with whatever he wanted it to be. And if you couldn't afford it, historians said that the tax man was always benevolent and willing to loan you the money with interest for you to pay the tax that he just on the spot maybe made up in a, in a trivial manner, just setting this new amount. In fact, in the Gospels, you're introduced to another tax man by the name of Zacchaeus, who when he follows Jesus, he says, I will give anything back that I've wrongfully taken from people, because it seems that these people abused their role in the first century. Now, what I'm telling you, all of that I'm, I'm telling you is because the position of a tax collector, although it was a lucrative one, it came with a very heavy social cost. In Jewish culture, these people were the lowest of lows. These were the worst of the worst. I think Jesus picked up on that social climate and mapped in Matthew chapter 5, during the Sermon on the Mount, when he will say, love your enemies, for if you only love those who love you, you're no greater than the tax collectors. He knew that that was the lowest in the culture, in people's thinking, that there was no lower point than, than the point that Levi had gone to. By taking this job, historian tells, he can't be a, a juror in a court case. And he also can no longer enter the local synagogue, the, the Jewish place of worship. It was the community statement that we have rejected you as someone that we don't trust. And it was the community's statement to that person that God himself has also rejected you from the house of worship. This guy, Levi, the tax collector, was viewed at the very least as a failure in his community or worse as a traitor working with the Romans to take advantage of his own countrymen. And I'm sure that those are things he was often reminded of as people walked past him or as they begrudgingly paid the tax, that they'd remind him of what a failure he was or what a traitor he had become. But Jesus on this day will pass him by with a large crowd of people, a multitude around him. And when he stopped at the base of the tax collector's booth, the crowd with Jesus must have held their breath. Like, oh, Jesus stopped. Why did he stop? Oh, they probably snickered. Oh, because Levi's at work today. They're probably hoping that Jesus would make a public spectacle of him in that moment. That Jesus would call him out and tell him, this is what everyone thinks of you and it's right. But what Jesus said, it shocked and silenced the multitude who was standing by his side because Jesus invited even this guy, Levi, to follow him. The crowd was probably appalled when they heard Jesus' words come out. Of all the things they imagined he'd say, this would have been the last one on their minds. 
They probably were appalled, and, and they must have assumed that it was just a mistake. Like, I wonder if they, in the crowd, they start looking around at each other and even placing bets on, like, how long is it going to be, though, before Levi fails him and before Jesus discards him? Or how long will it be before Jesus sees him as he really is, for who he really is? I mean, if they questioned in that moment, looking at each other, hang on, did Jesus make a mistake here? Or, or wondering, does Jesus just not know who he really is? The amazing thing is, that's the mystery of mysteries, isn't it? That you're fully known by God, and yet fully loved by him. That's the Christian message. That's what Jesus has proven to us, that you can be fully known by God, and simultaneously fully loved by him. It's true that that's mankind's greatest desire, right, is to be loved. It's a hardwired need that we have. We can twist it and turn it into just admired or feared or respected, but loved is what we want. But to be loved and not known, that's shallow. It's puppy love, right? It's not real. To be known, though, and not loved is terrifying. That someone chooses not to love us any longer because they know us, because they now see us for who we really are. But to be fully loved and fully known is the reality that's available to any person who chooses to follow Jesus. That God knows you completely and loves you totally. In fact, he demonstrated that love, Romans 5.8 says, and that while we were still sinners, he would suffer and die for us. To demonstrate it, it means to prove something. The gospel tells me, without a doubt, that I'm far worse than I had imagined, but I'm also simultaneously far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. That's the message of the cross. You know, it wasn't long ago that I, I ran into someone that I've worked with years ago as a student, and, and since they've gone on to college and finished school and started their career, and, and so I asked them, now removed from their life, I said, okay, give me the scoop. You know, all those years ago, you would have checked box if yes, Christian, like, what do you think now? And, and they kind of hung their head, and then they looked up and they said, you know, I, I've never really questioned the facts of it. Like, I believe the book. I believe that God is there, and I believe Jesus really, really was here, and that he existed, and I, I believe the facts about it. But when they hung their head, they said, you know, I just can't imagine that it can be true, though, that God can really know me and love me. Because this is the mystery of mysteries. This is the battle for faith for many of us. To approach God with, with confidence, knowing that he as a father loves us in spite of the fact that he knows us. That Jesus doesn't make a mistake here with Levi, as so many probably assumed, but that Jesus knew who he was, but he would not leave him as he was. Because to follow Jesus is an invitation for transformation. He knew completely what and who he was getting, but I believe he also knows completely who you and I are going to be shaped to be becoming, how he will reshape and transform our lives. You see, one of the trademarks of Jesus' ministry becomes that Jesus will pursue and choose those that no one else wanted, even those who were most hated. He will willingly associate himself with failures. He will treat failures as if they've never failed. That's how Jesus lived. And as scandalous as it was for Jesus to reach out and touch a leper just a few stories ago, it was even more scandalous in this culture for Jesus to invite this tax collector to come and be one of his disciples. And yet Jesus showed no hesitation in either of those situations. You know, there's a great story that emerges in the late 1400s or out of the late 1400s uh, where there's a story of a group of men who were spotted dragging a large marble block into a, a public park uh, in Florence, Italy. The, the, the large block of marble was, was meant to be sculpted by a famed artist of the day. His name was Donatello. 
However, Donatello, the story goes, he showed up at the park and as he began to observe this massive stone, he started to look at it and soon rejected it, saying that it was riddled with imperfections and, and that it was worthless and useless because he, he saw the flaws in the rock and was afraid, if I, if I invest my time in this and it crumbles or cracks, it's a waste and so I'm not even going to start. And so for years, years past, with that block sitting there untouched, having been discarded, known only as the block that was really passed over, the one that was rejected. Until one day, there's a new sculptor who saw that flawed block. And after he evaluated it, he felt so inspired that the story goes that he began work uh, almost immediately. And for two years, he worked tirelessly on that flawed block until finally, January the 25th of 1504, the greatest artist of all time gathered to see what was made of that rejected stone, and the statue was a masterpiece. Michelangelo's David is still considered one of the greatest works of art that the world has ever seen. For the crowd, they had no way of knowing or seeing what Jesus, the master craftsman, saw in Levi. Jesus saw in the, the flawed life of the man that Mark here and Luke that they introduced to us as Levi, the tax collector, Jesus saw a man that he would rename Matthew, that would become a great evangelist and world-shaping gospel writer. Matthew, the one who would write, the, the, first hand, uh, the first one to, as a first-hand eyewitness, to write an account of the life of Jesus. Think of it, until this point, Jesus is called fisherman and an and, uh, and, and insurrectionist to follow him, but he needed a man with a pen. He needed a man who, who was good with his words. He needed a man like Matthew to, to keep for us the record of the life of Jesus. This one that, that had been rejected and that was hated by everyone in his day is someone we revere and are so very thankful for, even in the 21st century, because the account of the gospel of, of according to Matthew is what is attributed to this Levi here in this story. According to church tradition, Levi, whose name will be changed to Matthew, which means the gift of God, so interesting how Jesus will shift his identity, that he will end up taking the gospel to Persia and later to Ethiopia, where he will die for his testimony of the risen Jesus. He'll be stabbed to death. I love in Matthew's gospel, when he tells his own story, he doesn't even ever reference himself as Levi, because Jesus had so changed who he was, his identity, that to reference Levi was almost as if writing about someone who no longer existed. Because following Jesus was an invitation for transformation. He would shift this man's life and identity in such a dramatic way. Yes, God sees you as you are, and he loves you. And yet I also believe that God sees you as you can be. The way that he will shape you and cause you to become the person he desires you to be. To follow Jesus is an invitation for transformation. Very quickly, it's a second thing, though. It's also an invitation to carry on a legacy. Again, in Luke's gospel, it tells you that he got up, left everything in that moment and follow Jesus. Now, if we stick with Jewish culture, remember Jesus, the rabbi at the age of 30, going out to call uh, disciples to follow. Many Bible scholars will agree with this, that probably 10 of the 12 disciples that will follow Jesus are young teenagers under the age of 18 years old, which shifts our Last Supper imagery, but also it, it explains a lot of the impulse stuff that we see in the Gospels with the guys, where they're like, this village rejected us. Jesus, Bring down the fire. Let's burn them to death. Like, you're like, that seems really harsh and, and irrational. And then you're like, well, what if they're 15? You're like, it sounds rational to a 15-year-old. Like, yeah, it makes way more sense. The two exceptions to this, who are probably not under the age of 18, 
are probably Peter and this guy Levi, that Levi's probably between the ages of 18 and 20, scholars will say, and then Peter himself, who we know it seems to function as their spokesman, and we know that he's the only guy that it's mentioned, him as being married, and at one point in time, he comes to Jesus saying, hey, what are we going to do about the temple tax? And Jesus says, I want you to go fishing for our tax, you and I, and he ends up uh, pulling those coins out of a fish. But it's interesting because that temple tax is only paid by a male who is 20 years or older, and Jesus seemed only concerned about he and Peter. So the assumption is that the rest of the guys are much younger. The reason I bring this up is because Jesus, as a rabbi, entrusted his mission and his message to his disciples, a bunch of teenagers that the world had already passed over and said weren't good enough. He trained that small group of teenagers to carry out his message of life and of hope for the whole world. And if they failed to live it out and pass it on, then his life and message, his mission, would have utterly failed. Because the message and the mission would have died with Jesus if they failed to carry it out. As I shared with you when we were talking about Jesus teaching the gospel of the kingdom, I, I really believe that the heart that longs for significance finds its rest and its joy and its purpose in being a part of the kingdom of God and being a follower of Jesus. Because to respond to Jesus' invitation is to respond to an invitation to carry on a legacy. And it was an invitation that they accepted and carried out uh, to their generation. But may I remind you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you and I have that same invitation and mission to this present generation. It's Jesus in Matthew 5, seeing the multitude that gathered and stepping back in response to the great crowd and, and pulling aside his disciples and beginning to teach them that you are the salt of the earth, that you are the light of the world, the, the, the salt, the, the flavor enhancer, the, 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 the thing that's used for medicinal purpose, the thing that's used as a preservative, the light of the world, that people are stumbling in darkness, that they're lost and hopeless, but you can bring light and hope again. The you that's there, though, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, the you is emphatic, which means in English it, it is better rendered that you are the only salt of the earth. You are the only light in this world, he told them. Without you carrying the mission, the message of your rabbi, the world will continue to stumble in darkness. This world will continue to rot and decay. As a disciple of Jesus, in some ways you are, in many ways you are, the world's only hope. Because Jesus could have written his message in the clouds. He, he could have sent angels to come down and trip people out and herald it. But instead, he chose Levi and Peter and John. He chose Trevor and he chose you. He could have accomplished his work any way he saw fit. And the way he's chosen is you. You're the ministers. You're the ones to carry out the mission and the message of Jesus as a follower of, of Jesus. In Ephesians 4, it tells me that, that my job as a, as a pastor, a shepherd, a teacher is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I'm not the minister. You are. We together collectively are. The success of this church is, is not so much based upon what's said, sung, or done here, but what the success of our church is truly judged by what you choose to do when you leave here because the ministry is carried on your shoulders. Because the mission of God is carried out in your life, through your life, in our community. What, what he's entrusted you to do, here's the good news. He does not require that you do it alone. He instead instructs us in the New Testament that we would do it together. In fact, the only thing in your Bible that God has instructed you to do alone is to believe because only you alone can make that choice. 
But everything else he does, he'll send them out two by two. Or in the Greek language, when he gives a command of what you should do, the you is plural. It's a y'all in English. That y'all are going to do this together. That he's entrusted us to do something, and it's massive. It's huge. It's the mission of God for the world we live in, but it's entrusted to us to do collectively together. My friends, the world needs you as a disciple. And I, I challenge you. Our primary goal in life ought to be this, that we would be like Jesus and that we would carry out his mission and message of hope for this world. To follow Jesus, it's an invitation for transformation. To follow Jesus, it's an invitation to carry on a legacy. But here's the, the third and final thing, and, and this is brief. It's simple. It's, it's very simple. To follow Jesus is an invitation for relationship. For relationship. When Jesus calls Levi to follow him, here in Mark chapter 2, there's a Greek linguist by the name of Dr. Weiss, and he points out that Jesus' simple words, follow me, would be better translated, follow with me. Because Jesus' words were not an invitation to anything other than a relationship. He wasn't asking him, come follow the rules. No, he was saying, follow me. Not follow close behind me, but no, walk closely beside me. It's Mark chapter 3, if you look ahead at verse 14, where it says, Then he appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach the gospel. I like that. They, that. The reason he appointed them was for them first to be with him, to know him, long before he would ask them to do anything for him, to go and talk about him. My friends, God's great goal for you is not necessarily even to be his disciple. God purchased you with the ransom of his son. Peter says, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ is what we were purchased with. It's in reality the only thing that God couldn't just snap his fingers and make more of. He purchased you so that he could adopt you. His end goal for you is not necessarily discipleship. His end goal for you is sonship. It's adoption. Not what he could get from you nor what you could do for him. His simple goal was getting you, redeeming, restoring, and adopting you. God's end goal for me, if you have a Bible still out, flip all the way to the end of the book. God's end goal for me is explained in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, I'll begin reading in verse 3. Then I heard a loud voice. We're in the second to the last chapter of the book. We're in heaven in this experience. Heaven and earth have collided. Things are right. Tears have been wiped away. Wrongs have been made right. This is what we all long for in our hearts. I hear this loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be uh, no more death nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have all passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. God's great goal at the end of the book is realized. His great goal is for him to be king over the redeemed and restored earth once again. But his great goal for you is also realized. His great goal for you is that he calls you now a son. And ladies, don't be offended, as I've mentioned, I think, before. The idea of being a son, if he said a son or a daughter, a son in that culture meant you are a full-fledged heir. 
that you share in everything. This is a, a gender, gender neutral thing. It's telling you that you're adopted into the family. It's, it's, not, just, uh, it's, it's not just about a male or a female. It's, it's about a position of, of being loved and safe and having everything shared with you, nothing held back from you. That's what God's end goal is for you. Not what he could get from you or even merely you choosing to follow him and say, I want to be like you. In the end, his end goal for you is sonship. Remember in your life that following Jesus, it's an invitation for transformation that he who began a good work in you says that he will be faithful to complete it. You need to yield to that transforming work undoubtedly, but trust that his power can touch and transform you, can free you and change you. It's also an invitation to carry on a legacy, to live out the mission and the message of God's love for this world. It's undoubtedly, though, most importantly, it's an invitation for relationship. He wants to know you and be known by you. You know, it's beautiful that Jesus would never ask anything of you that he wouldn't first give for you. For Matthew, he left everything to follow Jesus. But Jesus would first leave everything before even asking it of Matthew. He would leave everything before asking me, before inviting me, come and leave it all to follow me, Trevor. Listen, following Jesus, it, it may not always be easy, but my friends, it is always, always worth it. Whatever you give up or leave behind will pale in comparison to what is gained in having Jesus. But if you're in the valley of decision and you've yet to decide if you'll follow him, I'd ask you to consider what would it cost me though? What might it cost me to choose not to follow him? To choose not to respond to this question, this invitation that I think echoes over 2000 years to be heard over you today, to come and follow me. Please hear me, your motivation is not fear or shame. Your motivation is love. It's the unique thing about the gospel. That our motivation is that we are loved, that he has first loved us and that we love him in return.